Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. My mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible? Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego and the Education Synergy Alliance. We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids. We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. It should be an excellent school in every community. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Scott Lewis. And I'm Laura Cohn. Uh, I'm from The Voice of San Diego, and Laura is from Education Synergy Alliance. And I today. Am. Today we have a uh, special show. We are um, we're going to try to tackle one of the gnarliest and most interesting problems in California schools and in San Diego schools, and that's English language learners. And to start us off, I actually wanted to tell the story of a San Diego resident, Damian Tryon. Damian lives in Tierra Santa with his wife and son. His son's name is Ethan. Ethan's mom is a native Spanish speaker, and Damian speaks Spanish at home as well. And Ethan has grown up in a bilingual household. He speaks... That's great. Right? Yeah, it's really good for kids' brains to hear two languages. Uh, when they're that young, um, they have a great ability to absorb multiple languages. When Damien first took Ethan to elementary school, though, he faced the choice. At the moment that we enrolled him, you know, it was just past summer, so... We were in Mexico, mm -hmm. so Spanish was great. And so when we couldn't say he was bilingual, they kicked the form back to us. We had to pick one, and we picked Spanish. Speaking was primary in the household. Well, that decision followed Ethan for many, many years. And this is what happens when you make that choice. They pulled him out for English learner classes, which at the time we didn't think was unreasonable. Um, like I said, he's just starting, but could use some extra help in, in writing and reading. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have a problem with that. Um, but after a while, those things equaled out just fine. And then, you know, by fifth and sixth grade, he's predominantly in English. He's getting straight A's and there's no more worries. We're talking about English learners today because this is an enormous challenge for California schools and for schools right here in the San Diego region. Um, for example... Um, one third of all the English language learners in the country are right here in California. And uh, and one in five of San Diego County students are English learners. So it's it's right at the heart of our education system here. Yeah. And in coming months, all Californians are going to be asked to vote on repealing one of the most controversial measures uh, we've seen on the ballot in the last few decades. And that was uh, 1998's Proposition 227 that basically um, barred sort of bilingual education in the state. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the show. Now, Ethan was a premature baby, and his parents uh, decided that they wanted 
or that they were okay with him getting a little bit extra support. They tested him for fluency. Um, this was like pre-kindergarten. Mm -hmm. um, and he was actually, uh, also oddly enough, a preemie and born on the last day for the cutoff. So he was about as young as he could be, ever, ever been to be in that class. Um, and so they tested him and they didn't find him fluent in Eng either one, mm -hmm. which was news to us. But, but um, you know, that led to, so we held him back a year because he was, because he was young. But the next year, that whole designation followed him. He, huh. he will, even up until September of last year, was classified as an English learner. So Ethan was classified an English language learner, and with that comes a lot of assumptions and now research about those assumptions. Yeah, I mean, one thing is that everybody who's in California schools and San Diego schools, they're really committed to trying to make sure that English learners are getting the best possible education. And when they look at the traditional markers of whether kids are learning, namely test scores for the most part, it looks really scary. For example, we sometimes hear alarming statistics like only 6% of 8th grade English learners in San Diego County are reading at grade level. Only 6%. But then again, they're English learners, so maybe it's not so surprising that they're struggling with reading. Um, or looking at the math side, only 15% of English learner 4th graders in our county are doing math at grade level. Again, initially really alarming and you might think that math would be a subject where even if you're an English learner, you can still add, subtract, divide, and do fractions, which is true. But a lot of math um, includes reading. You have to read the directions for what you're supposed to do. You have to listen to the teacher and as they frame the problems up. And so actually your ability with English has a huge effect on your ability to, to test um, well in math. Yeah, it's kind of the founding you know, principle or foundation of learning everything else. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you read to learn in every subject. Um, and so if, if, you're, if you're not on top of your English, then it, it affects you in multiple, multiple ways. That's why um, we do need to put a lot of attention on English language learning. But when we frame things, when we get into the habit of framing things as an achievement gap for our English learners, we might be falling into a trap. Yeah, so we called... Connor Williams, one of the foremost experts on this, he's the director of the New America Foundation's Dual Language Learner National Work Group. And Connor immediately put some of those uh, statistics into perspective for us. Until pretty recently, there was nothing standard that we could look at to get any kind of good data. No Child Left Behind changed that. It made it so that we had state-by-state -state data on the English language proficiency of these kids and that we could actually track it over time. Uh, we also had you know, math and, and English language arts uh, data on these kids over time. So we could, we have a reasonably good idea of how they were doing relative to other kids. The challenge with the data that we have though, is that if you are an English learner in the eyes of your school, your district and, and the state, by definition, and this is under federal law, you are classified as an English learner because your language profile, your language abilities prevent you from demonstrating what it is you know and can do on content assessments, mm -hmm. meaning there should be an achievement gap. You right. should be underperforming. And other places are tracking this much differently. And there's a few states that are doing this. Oregon is the one that I know best. 
uh, where what they've started doing is when a kid gets put in the English learner group, you know, usually there's a huge achievement gap between English learners and not English learners. But then after a while, they leave that group. And historically, then that meant they got counted in the not English learner group and their improving academic achievement made the achievement gap look better or look bigger. But what Oregon started doing is tracking these kids as former English learners. They call it um, ever EL, ever English learners. Hmm. They track them after they leave, too. And they're finding some really encouraging things. There's a few districts that do this. And occasionally we find that um, English learners actually, after they leave the group, they, they actually outperform kids who were never in the group often. So we actually find that this is one of our highest growth student groups in the country. They have some, like occasionally you see things like they have actually higher graduation rates than, um, than native born monolingual English speakers. Right. So if we actually need to step back and if we're talking about the city of San Diego's school district uh, and how poorly they're doing with English language learners, we may need to reassess that if it's if they're doing really well, then yes, the achievement gap in that particular area would be getting worse. Yeah, I, it's really um, turns things upside down, Connor's point. And I think uh, it's it's a really important one to think about. But yeah, the main uh, purpose of classifying children as English learners is so that you help them acquire English and you want them to graduate out of that group. So that's what that's the side of the issue that we absolutely want to stay focused on. Yeah. And there's other myths that we need to bust out there, too, because uh, we might assume that some of these English language learners are are just our our immigrant children that come in. They're just, you know, they've just arrived in the country somehow and, and now they're being forced into a into a school that they're just trying to get used to. Well, that's not necessarily the case. As you found, 7% of children in San Diego County are immigrants, right? Right, we're born elsewhere. And 22.4% are English language learners. Correct. Which means that there are a lot of people here who are themselves learning the language while they go through this. It's, It's not just a function of recent immigration. Right, yeah. So let me just make sure it's clear to everybody that most of our English learners in San Diego County are born to immigrants, but they were born here in the United States. And so they are speaking another language at home because that's their home language and their their family's cultural language. Um, so when they get to school, it may be the first time that they're learning English. I hope they'll have had uh, an early learning experience as well. But that's the challenge is it's kids who are coming into our schools as early as kindergarten or pre-kindergarten, or even preschool. And, um, and we're taking on the challenge of helping them learn English, even though they're speaking a different language at home. Now, another myth that um, Connor, I think, did a good job countering was this idea that they were an immediate sort of drain on the school, that the, that these uh, English language learners are, um, you know, a, uh, um, a problem themselves that they cause a, a a weight on other learning and other things that might be happening and that they're, you know, or that they're just not as smart when in fact uh, the reality is, is much different. There's some research showing that um, young children of immigrants and, and sometimes dual language learners come into American schools on some indicators and benchmarks doing better than native born American kids. Meaning a lot of it's usually in social and emotional learning areas where you say that, you find that, you know, these kids are better at conflict resolution or they are, um, you know, they're more likely to come from from two parent households. And then they usually they pick up a bunch of sort of strong social uh, indicators off of that, too. So it's just to say that, like, it's easy to think of these kids as those poor children of color from another country who speak another language over there. Right. But, 
you know, we have reasonably good research that, that a lot of these kids, and, and, and in some cases more than the American native born Americans they're compared to, uh, are actually, you know, they're, they're assets they bring to the classroom. Now, I, I saw that at our own school when, when we were asking other parents why they had chosen not to send their kids to our uh, neighborhood school as we were trying to understand some enrollment problems and, and shuffles that had to happen because of that. Uh, I had a, a parent tell me that they chose not to send their kid to our school because there was a, a little bit higher percentage of English language learners at that school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they assumed that that meant that there would, there, it would be sort of crippling for the rest of the student population as well. And yet there was really no evidence for that. Great. Yeah. My, my kids go to a school that has a lot of English learners as well. And I think it enriches their experience. All right. Well, on that point, and we're going to get back to Ethan's story, which I think has a, has an interesting conclusion, but we wanted to transition to, um, what is working? So what's working? Uh, we've talked before about dual language immersion schools. These are schools where um, kids learn in uh, English for part of the day and another language for part of the day, often Spanish, but Mandarin and German and other languages um, are used as well. And we have two charter schools in San Diego County. We have 82 schools overall. We've uh, cited this before that are using that approach. But we have two charter schools that are celebrated both in our state and nationally that I wanted to call out. One is Eje Academy in El Cajon. And the other is Chula Vista Learning Community Charter School. And those schools are both exemplifying how to do dual language immersion at its best. And they're serving um, low-income kids of color, immigrants and non-immigrants, just perfectly. And they're doing it in partnership with San Diego State University in the case of the Chula Vista Learning Community Charter School. And that's helping to address an issue that is... um, a problem for this approach to education, which is you need teachers who can speak English and another language and teach well in both of those languages. All right, back to Damien and his son, Ethan. It was actually going really well for them. They were in a dual language immersion program in elementary school. And yes, Ethan did get a little extra help with English. They would pull him out and work with him. And uh, that actually... That dual language program is the way to go. Connor uh, helped us put that in perspective. The best thing you can offer is a uh, well-implemented two-way dual immersion program. That means that it's offering both instruction in the EL, ELL's home language and in English at the same time. It's dual immersion because it's these children are learning English while they're continuing develop, to develop in their home language. And their English-speaking, native English-speaking peers are learning English while beginning to develop in Spanish or Mandarin or Vietnamese or whatever the the other language is. That's the best you can do if it's well implemented. And that's hard to do. But for Ethan, it was when he transitioned to middle school, they were still taking him out of class, even though he had tested uh, as proficient in English. And it's that act of pulling kids out of class that really had uh, Connor, when we talked to him, worried. And once, uh, and that's the kind of problem that he's trying to address. And it's the actual more predominant, he says, way that English language learners have been treated since the passage of Proposition 227, which did ban this sort of dual language teaching. Now, you can have these dual language programs because uh, you, can, you can opt into them in the system. Yeah, that's right. So 
if a parent affirmatively chooses a school that is dual language only, then like a charter school or even an in-district school, then that gets around the 227 restriction. Or you'll have regular public schools in San Diego County in California that have a dual language uh, track in them, but parents have to sign a piece of paper saying that they agree to have their kid in that track. Not for long, though, maybe. The In November, voters are going to be asked uh, to either approve or reject the California Multilingual Education Act, which would gut most of what Proposition 227 put in place. Yeah, this was passed uh, or sent to the voters as a referendum by the legislature in last session. So it'll show up on our ballots in November um, and legislators uh, were ready to make that change, but they need voter approval since it was originally passed as a as an initiative. So we'll have a chance to weigh in on this. And it was so heated last time around. It'll be interesting to see if Californians are ready, ready to switch. Now, Connor surprised us with uh, one place that might be doing it a lot better. Surprised me for sure. I had, didn't see this one coming. Here's something that will blow your mind, right? So California's got about a third of the country's ELLs. Mm-hmm. It's something like 1.6 or 1.7 million. There's about 4.5 or so, I think, in the, in the country now. Texas has about 750,000. So they've got about one in six. Between California and Texas together, it's about half of the ELLs in the country. So California is mostly ESL, mostly English only. 95% of these kids are in English only programs. In Texas, they have a transitional bilingual mandate. Ruby Red, Texas, conservative Texas, you know, George W. Bush, Ted Cruz, and Rick Perry's Texas. They have a transitional bilingual mandate, meaning that they run the bulk of their, their ELLs are in bilingual education programs. Uh-oh, Texas this has showing been the case us up. Decades. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm amazed every time I say it. I still can't believe this is the case. But yeah. I mean, truth be told, Texas probably runs more bilingual classrooms than the rest of the country put together. That actually brings us to this week's number of the week. So the number of the week, we're trying to get at, well, how are we doing here in California? And um, the number of the week is 75%. So 75% of California students in middle and high school are long-term English learners. That means they've been designated as English learners for at least seven years. So most of them started in our schools in kindergarten. And um, that gets back, Scott, to that point we were making earlier that most of the English learners um, in our schools are not recent immigrants just, you know, arriving from another country. They're actually kids who've grown up here in California, but we're really struggling to help them get the English skills that they need to thrive in school. Mm-hmm. And it's this fact that I think Connor said, Connor Williams said, scares him the most. One of the, the old horror stories from this, and I think this is less common now, is there used to be situations where kids would come into California schools as, as kindergartners get classified as English language learners and then spend 13 years never getting out of the group in these separate classes, these separate buildings, these separate programs that were ESL only, essentially. So they just never got academic instruction. Uh, And they just sort of sit out there outside of the education system, essentially segregated. That through court decisions and a lot of advocacy, that's going away. A lot of it has gone away. Uh, You still see some really really worrisome data on, you know, like on the number of, of kids in Los Angeles USD, for instance, that are, that remain in, in the English language learner group for more than seven years, more than nine years, and still some kids who just never get out. Okay, back to Ethan. He and his parents thought they were done with all this. 
he's the top of his class in English. Uh, you know, uh, I think early on in school, he had a little little struggle in writing. But, you know, the, if you talk to anybody, he's fluent in English. Yeah. And he was equally fluent in Spanish, at least in speaking. Damien is happy with his son's education. He's happy how things turned out. But the school district asked him to decide whether his son did not speak Spanish at home any longer or whether he was opting out of English support that Ethan was getting. It was a decision that continues to haunt him because he did speak Spanish at home. And that didn't mean something was wrong. That's my major concern is that, um, you know, I can't describe my kid to this bureaucracy in the right way. Wow. So here's the thing. I'm. It should be that all of us would want for our kids to be bilingual. And uh, and here's a family that did everything right. They spoke in both languages at home and they enrolled their child in a dual language immersion program. And somehow the bureaucracy just couldn't wrap their minds around uh, this idea of a bilingual child. But we need to get better at that because what uh, the error that I think we're often making is that we're trying to teach this asset that a lot of our children come into schools with another language, we're trying to teach it out of them and, and encourage them to forget it, which number one, they lose a job skill and a life skill, but also it help, it causes them to lose some connection to their home culture. And that's really tough for families as well. It is tough. And we're going to work and we're going to spend a lot of time on this. Our own Mario Coran, I'm very proud to acknowledge, won a fellowship from New America and from Connor Williams' staff to pursue this question obsessively over the next few months to really get a handle on on what these kids deal with and what we can do to help them and their families. Mario, so tell me what you're doing. I'm, I'm working on a, a year-long project. We've been doing the learning curve for uh, for about a year now. It's, it's an enjoyable column to write. I've learned a lot about schools uh, myself in, in writing it. So anybody can send in questions and then I'll, I'll hunt about for an answer and come back and explain it. And it's turned into like an explainer column. So every Thursday you do this piece called The Learning Curve. It's usually pivoting off of a question that a parent has asked through one of our, you know, email blast questionnaires or through just something you've heard in the community that comes out every Thursday. It's emailed to all of our subscribers. You should subscribe to it. Go to voicesandiego.org. And what you're saying is you're going to pump it up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we, we've, I've taken mostly a random approach to questions as they come in. And that's been, that's been fine. Uh, if a question comes in and it's something timely, I'll write the column on that. But I'd like to make it a bit more strategic. And I think that there's uh, a, a way to do it that can bring in more parental voices into the conversation about schools, uh, uh, voices that have been marginalized, uh, whether whether by choice or or these sociological factors on them. They've just been, there's some parents that are less engaged and I want to get those parents and bring them in. So one way you could do that if you're listening is actually encourage somebody or yourself to call our own uh, voicemail that's collecting some of these stories. And we also speak Spanish so we can, we can handle some of the Spanish language inquiries that come in. That number is 619-354-1085. If you want us to wrestle with the questions that you're dealing with or that somebody you know is dealing with or one of your students is dealing with or one of your students' parents is dealing with, go ahead and have them call that number. Leave a long, detailed uh, message about what they're dealing with and how we can get a hold of them, what school or what area of town they're, they're in. And we'll have a discussion about that. All right, Scott. So I'd like to ask you something. All right. I'd like to turn this around. What a treat. <laughs> I'd turn this around on you. So f 
I've written a lot about English learners, right? Yes. So English learners are basically students who are learning English, right? And they take these tests every year right. to show that they're still indeed learning English. If they make enough progress, they are considered fluent in, in English. Yeah, they're reclassified, which is supposed to be and should be a, an achievement, right, of the school district. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a really important moment because they can, they're, they're no longer... Uh, considered English learners. They no longer have to sit in remedial classes learning basic English. They can take college prep courses and try to catch up with their peers. So reclassification is an important moment. Um, So I've been writing about English learners for about a year. Mm -hmm. And let me just tell you that the feedback that I've gotten and the the response that some of the stories gotten has has been a bit hit and miss. Mm -hmm. It seems like I've got the impression that when I write about English learners, um, maybe because I'm describing them as a demographic, maybe because I'm describing them as a group, the point isn't coming through that these are students. These are kids that are, are very much in need of help. And I, for whatever reason, that there seems to be a disconnect between, uh, between readers, between engagement, and the, in my opinion, the seriousness of this issue. And so, I, you know, I want to ask you, uh, in, in your opinion, what we can do as, as writers to bring this out. And maybe if you've got any ideas how we can reach out to, to stakeholders, parents, teachers, how we can bring some of them into the conversation. Yeah, I think we, you know, we've tried to talk about this a little bit, and I think it has to do with that problem of just sort of immediately describing them as a demographic, as a sort of class, and then sort of having the discussion about how they compare, how they fit, what should happen. And I think a lot of people kind of tune out when that comes up because I, it's, it's, it's a very difficult problem. How do you, I mean, it's, it's the story of America. How do you assimilate a group of people and help them, help them join the game that we're all in right now and, and succeed at it? And I think that, you know, everybody's dealing with their own problems. And so I think the more, the, the way we're going to do that is to really connect with people about, you know, specific stories of, 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 you know, maybe injustice or maybe lack of, lack of equity, or maybe it's just about, um, you know, innovations and programs that are really helping them succeed. Because regardless of whether we're involved in that group or whether we're a part of it, or whether, you know, it's a separate sort of group to us, or even a threatening group to some parents who feel like it might be taking resources away from their own students or something like that, that if we realize that it's important to all of us that they succeed and that they have as much success and that they have as, you know, fulfilling of an education as possible, because we want them to uh, be assimilated, to have the, you know, opportunity and job skills that they'll need to also you know, be successful because we we are all in this together in a way. And so I think, yeah, I think once we get past, you know, headlines that say English learners and demographic information about how poorly they're performing and really start to make emotional connections with people about what they're dealing with and then and then uh, messages about what can be done or what, you know, solutions and offering a solutions-based discussion after that, I think is I think that's my idea of what a, what success would be with this program. Absolutely. And I, you said that perfectly. And I think. Um, Thanks. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> it's probably the last time I'll ever say that in my life. Uh, so, you know, I think one point that's missed is that this isn't a niche niche issue necessarily. We're talking about the future of the workforce yep. here in San Diego. Like these are, these are students who, these are kids who are going to grow up and most likely the ones who are going to stay local and provide the base of our economy. And yet they are struggling. We're talking about 23, almost 23% of students in San Diego County. This isn't, you know, a small group of people, 
you know, uh, on the sides of any individual school. In some places, this is a very large portion of the school. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, all these things that we're talking about, you asked what I want to accomplish. You asked me that earlier. And so at the end of the year, I want to have fleshed these out. I want to have brought people into the conversation, brought kids and highlighted the students' stories, most importantly, because as you've highlighted earlier, we write a lot about schools, but we don't always get the kids and the families' voices yeah. in there. So I want, to, I want to have accomplished that and really just move this conversation forward by the end of the year. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We want to hear your stories about this. What have you experienced uh, with any of the transitions we've talked about or with your own English language learning experience or your children's? Uh, this is something we want to hear about and we're going to focus on, like, like we said, for the next several months. This is a big deal and we want to hear what you go through. So we have a number set up. Call it. Leave your message. Tell us who you are, what neighborhood you are in, what schools you go to if, if that's an option. And tell us your experience. Call 619-354-1085. That's 619-354-1085. And let us know what you went through, and, and hopefully we can talk about it and maybe find some answers if you have questions. Yeah, we really love hearing the, the real-world stories, so, so bring them on, please. And that was another Good Schools for All. Yeah, it was. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.